morning. Always glad when Mark asked me to come and share because I've got a lot to share and we're going to get to it here pretty quickly now today. Now today we're snapshots of Jesus and we're looking at the gospel of Luke which is the third gospel in the New Testament. Most of you know that. But uh, for those of you who didn't, and last week Mark started with this slide and had something else in there, but I thought it was a good way to start this week and to ask a very important question. It is a question that has been asked for thousands of years. It is a deeply philosophical question. It's a question that Jesus dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a question he dealt with in several of his teachings. But it is is an important question that I hope that you ask yourself, that you read about, that you ponder, that you reflect upon. There's some silly answers to the question, but there's also some very profound, important answers to the question. And here's the question. What is the goal of life? Where is life headed? I'm not talking about goals as if setting goals for, you know, the 2022. You know, I want to lose five pounds this year. I want to make five new friends. I, I want to travel. I want to do these things. Not talking about those kinds of things. I'm talking about the singular important goal of life. What is it? What do you think it is? Glorify God and to live with him forever. Want to add something? And, and populate heaven. Worship God and populate heaven. The goal of life. The goal of life. Important question. So we're going to do three things. Number one, we're going to look at some possible answers, some proposed answers one, not so serious. Two, more serious. The second thing we're going to do is take a look at a very famous story that Jesus told. You'll know the story immediately after we kind of get into it. I'm not going to tell you what it is quite yet. And then finally, we're just going to consider some takeaways. And from that, we're going to actually appeal back to last week's teaching of, that Mark gave us. Um, I wasn't able to be here last week, but I saw it as it was happening uh, through the Internet. And some of you are watching this morning. Thank you very much for doing that. Uh, and, and we've got about two minutes that we're going to listen to Mark because I think he, he really had an important thing to say about something that we'll be talking about a little bit later on. So some takeaways from that some important takeaways, and some of the takeaways that we'll share with this morning. But these are serious questions. So here's some possible answers to the question, what is the goal of life? Now, one answer to that question is, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. And the reason is, is because life is completely meaningless. The universe is cold and meaningless. You had nothing to do with your birth, It was an accident from your point of view. You'll have nothing to do with your death, probably. It'll be from natural causes or maybe, unfortunately, an accident. So your birth is an accident, your death is an accident, and everything in between is just a big accident as far as the universe is concerned because there is nothing. There is absolutely, positively nothing. Nothing means anything. Your life means nothing. That is a very serious philosophical answer to the question of what is the goal of life. And if there is nothing, and if your life is going to lead to nothing, and there is no heaven, there is no afterlife, there is no God, all of those kinds of things, then the answer to the question is what is the goal of life? That's the dumbest question you could ask because it is no goal. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is nothing more than just what you make of it today, the pleasure you can draw out from today. And by the way, that too is meaningless. And you know why? Because pretty soon pleasure's over. And pretty soon the things that brought you pleasure at one time will no longer bring you pleasure anymore. So pleasure is meaningless. It's all completely meaningless. That is one of the answers. And a lot of people who are running things these days actually believe that. And think that. 
A lot of the people making decisions for you and me in very high places actually think that, believe that, and practice that. And they think that you and I should too. Here's another possible answer. Less serious. Can you see that? Make it a little bigger. The person who dies with the most toys wins. The purpose of life is just to get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid, and poison the rest. That's what the meaning of life is. You get all you can. And the person that got the most at the very end, that's the winner. That's the one who succeeds. I used to play golf. I was a pastor for a number of years and I had a church in Memphis, Tennessee. And I played golf with a guy named uh, Frankie. Frankie was kind of a bigger than life kind of guy. You know, people like this. Always had a joke. Always had something funny going on. And this is what he used to always point to. You never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And you know what? You just have right there. Thanks to Photoshop, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You notice that U-Haul sitting down on the ground, by the way can't take it with you. You might think you can, but you can't. Where is life headed? Well, where's the goal of life? Well, it's not grabbing stuff. Now, there's a little more serious answer here. Let me introduce you to a guy named Aristotle. Aristotle lived hundreds of years before Jesus. He's a very important thinker. He, He has impacted the world in ways that you and I can probably hardly even imagine. He wrote a book called Nicomachean Ethics. And I would recommend that book to you as a starting point for thinking about the question of life. What is the good of life? What is the goal of life? What is the most important thing that we could be doing? I used to have students. I was the founding dean of the Honors College at Houston Baptist University. And we used to have students read this in their second year. Nickel McKeon Ethics. And he deals in dialogues. It's not a hard book, but it's a very thoughtful book. And in that question, he asks, what is the telos of life? Say that word with me, telos. Telos. Telos means end, goal, purpose. It means all those things. The end, the goal, the purpose. What is the telos of life? And he talked a lot about, and philosophers at that time talked a lot about the good. The good. Do you realize how often we use the word good? Did you have a good night's sleep? Did you have a good breakfast? Did you have a good day? Did you have a good vacation? How was your commute into work today? Was it good? Think about all the times we use the word good. All of us are sort of hardwired to think about what is the good of life. And most of us know the difference between something that's good and bad, right? Sometimes people call bad stuff good and good stuff bad, but by and large, we're sort of tilted toward having a good life. And at the very end of life, somebody might be, you know, uh, their, their, their body might be lying in the grave, but people might say things, you know, he lived a good life. She lived a good life. So the Greeks would talk about the tagathon, the good, the good of life. And so a part of that is the question of telos, the question of purpose, the question of goal, the question of where is all of this headed? And so here's an image to think about. And this is a simple way of thinking about it. What is the telos of an acorn? What's the telos? Everything, according to the Greeks, everything had a telos. That, the chair you're sitting in has a telos. This computer has a telos. I have a telos. These lights have a telos. These cameras have a telos. The internet has a telos. What is the telos of an acorn? Feeds the squirrels. No, it's an oak tree. You follow the life of an acorn, and every oak tree was once upon an acorn. That's how it started. Here's Aristotle again. Now, this is what Aristotle said, very simply in the book Nicomachean Ethics. For Aristotle, the telos of life is eudaimonia. 
Eudaimonia is a Greek word that means, is often translated happiness, but that's not a very good translation. Because for Aristotle, happiness was not a state of mind. Not sort of what happens. It's not just the way you think about stuff. For him, it was an activity, energia. Our word energy comes from that. Our energy is focused in upon the telos of eudaimonia, that is happiness. It could be translated flourishing. It could be translated success. It could be translated a variety of things. But all of us sort of understood, understand about happiness to some degree. And we deal with it. But for us, most of the time, happiness is not what Aristotle thought. Now, Aristotle, I would like for you to meet Stuart Briscoe. Stuart Briscoe is a pastor that I used to follow. Love Stuart Briscoe. is a funny guy. He's from Britain originally. He and his wife, Jill, had a wonderful ministry. And this is what, this is what Stuart Briscoe used to say about this. For most people, their happiness depends upon their happenings. If their happenings don't happen to happen the way they want their happenings to happen, they're not happy. Right? Say that three times fast. It's, it's hard to do. I can't say it one time all the way through. Happenings. Do, do the happenings make you happy? That's not what Aristotle was talking about. Happiness has to do with our activity, our engagement with the world, and our satisfaction in that world. It's not the result of this happened to me and I'm not happy. I'm going to marry her and she's going to make me happy. I'm going to get this degree and that's going to make me happy. I'm going to change jobs or I'm going to move to another state. That's going to make me happy. No. Happiness has to do with our engagement with the world and our satisfaction in that engagement and our living in that in a, in a virtuous way, a way where the virtues are an important part of our lives. Now, this is, what, this is a serious philosophical idea. Don't think of happiness the way that we as Americans think of happiness, just sort of what, what's the residual leftover. Did you have, we don't ask usually, Ed, did you have a happy day? Did you have a happy sleep? Did you have a happy commute today? No. We use the word differently. So here's, here's where I want to go with this. And I want to show you that our, our forefathers and our three mothers, here are three of the forefathers, uh, ensconced this language in a very important document we call the Declaration of Independence. What is this? Independence Weekend, right? And they used... At line at the very beginning about our unalienable light, uh, rights, life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. They had been reading their Aristotle. They knew that happenings didn't create happiness. They knew that life's pursuits created happiness and satisfaction and human flourishing. This is a serious philosophical idea, the roots, if you will, of our own democracy, republic, constitutional republic. Well, I want to look now, a couple of, couple of important ideas, one to a famous story. We're going to start with a lawyer. Now, the reason we start with a lawyer is because this story is about a lawyer. And I know this is a lawyer because I notice I have the scales of justice, right? Scales of justice here. And I've got a really nice looking pen. Right? And I've got I've got I've got a gavel here and I've got glasses. Apparently he's far sighted. I would say that's about a two point five plus two point five there. I, I don't know, what do you think? And I look at that picture and I, I think, you know, something's missing. There's one thing that's missing. You know what that is? His head? No, a pocket square. A pocket square. Some of you might remember the last time I was here, I talked about the fact I had pocket square envy. I never can pull off a pocket square. I put it on, and people say, that's not right. 
doesn't look right on you. So anyway, lawyer and his pocket square. So we're going to talk about a lawyer today. A nomikos, a person who, who works with the God's law and the teaching of God's law. And from that pocket square, you know, that's what we ought to do. I like that. Let's go back to that. Hold on. Let's see, can we do that? That pocket square became a place for Scripture. Wouldn't that be nice to have a pocket square that had Scripture on the inside? Every time a lawyer puts it on, he'd have to read that scripture. She'd have to read that scripture. Do women wear pocket squares? Uh, not really? Okay. All right. Be a good thing. You could sell them in, in shops and such. So here's what the lawyer said. He asked a question. He stood up asking Jesus a question. He stood up to tempt him and to put him to the test. Now, I frankly get tired of this kind of stuff. And when you read the Gospel of Luke and you realize that this guy's just kind of messing with Jesus, he's testing Jesus, he's putting Jesus in kind of, he's trying to shame Jesus publicly. He's trying to get the best of Jesus in a debate. I get tired of theological debates. I honestly do. I think, I think God gets tired of them. We, we do a lot of debating. Well, that's not fair to the sovereignty of God. You need to, you know, or whatever it might be, or that's not conducive to this idea of, that's too Pelagian for me. They throw around these big fancy words. He, but he's, he's testing. It's a public thing. And he asked Jesus a very important question. And this is the question he asked him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Would you say that's an important question? Maybe the most important question. It's a question not far removed from what is the telos of life, the purpose, the goal, the end. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let me introduce you to something. And let me, before I do that, Let's talk about this. What are the most important words up there? And now I'm a professor, so I like people to give me a little feedback. What do you think is the most important word up here? Is it the word teacher? Is it the word what? Do? What else? Eternal life. What? Inherit? Important words. Every word is important to some degree, but let me suggest to you, based upon where this is heading, where the whole teaching piece is heading, what the important thing is here. Two words, do and eternal life, particularly life. In fact, Jesus is going to use those same two words over and over again in this particular teaching piece, and you'll see what I mean. Now, before I talk a little bit about that, I want to see if I can... Oh, yeah, what is the telos of life? Let me see. Let me give you a, kind of a, a setting, a background for this. And it goes from the idea of a, what Jesus is doing here is called a midrash. Say that word with me, midrash. Now, it's a particular kind of midrash. It's called a yelamadenu rabenu midrash. Can you say that? No, don't, don't try it. Yelamadenu Rabbeinu. Now that translates into let our rabbi teach us. It's a particular kind of thing that we see in the Gospels, but we also see it in the rabbinic literature where, where the students will come to the rabbi, the, the wise one, and begin asking questions and receiving responses. And so there's a question and answer sort of format. And this is how these things were memorized. I know Mark has talked a lot about the fact that among the gospel writers, there may have been note takers, and I think that's probably true, but not, there weren't note takers to everything. But everything was seen and heard and memorized in particular forms. And I was introduced to this whole idea by my doctor father 35 years ago. And I think it's right on target. And this is how, well, let me talk about what a midrash is first. You ever dig a hole? Did it have a purpose for digging the hole? Did you have a reason for digging that hole? Or you had a purpose, right? 
Now, the word midrash comes from a root that means to dig, to search for, to investigate. And it comes to mean study. The other day, well, yesterday, Kathy and I were doing a bit of digging ourselves. We bought this house two years ago, and the the sprinkler system in the house worked, but there was a part that wasn't getting any water. And I noticed there was a sprinkler head that never worked and didn't. So yesterday, after we cut the grass and after we did the weed eating, I started digging to try to see if I could find a valve that was broken that fed this whole part of our yard that's turning very brown now. Now, the purpose of digging is to investigate. And so we found out, we didn't answer all of my questions yesterday. We still have more digging to go. It was about 100 degrees when we stopped digging. And it was in the full sun. So we, about noon, we said, no, I'm through digging. Ground was hard. It was dry. But we found out it. We found other sprinkler heads we didn't know were there. We found pipes that were broken we didn't know were broken. We found a number of things, but we didn't find yet that valve that controls all that. But the purpose of digging is to discover, to discover something. So the, the rabbi said, you know, there's all this great scripture. Let's just dig around in there. So the act of study is called midrash. The thing which is taught is called midrash. So when Mark comes up here week after week and he teaches and he teaches, he's doing midrash with you. He's given you the results of his investigation into scripture. And the week before that, or maybe two weeks before that, he starts studying all that studying, all that studying, all those conversations he has with me and Pastor David and other people about the text before he teaches. That's midrash too. So Jesus is giving a midrash here. The disciples are receiving the teaching of Jesus, and they do so in a particular form called midrash. Now, here's how it's set up. The Biela Medina midrash looks something like this. There's a question followed by an answer, usually based on Scripture, followed by some sort of commentary, which is often and most of the times very brief. And then there's another question. And often based upon the answer or the commentary, there's a question based upon the answer that Jesus has just given or the rabbi's just given. Then there's another answer, often based upon Scripture, and then another commentary. And this is the form in which it was memorized and remembered and passed down until it was finally written down in what we call today the Gospels. That's the form. So let's look a little bit at the question. Here's the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Another way of, and this was, not, this was not the only time Jesus got this question. He got it in several forms and in several ways as you would expect. The rabbis, uh, Hillel had this, this practice of when somebody came to him with a question, how do I convert and, as a Gentile to become a Jew? And he had a particular way of answering that. And so it happened time and time again. I have a feeling Jesus got this question a lot, if not in this form, in some other form. And the answer to that question is what? To ask a question. What question did he ask? He says, okay, you're a lawyer. I'll put it back on you. What do you think? What's, what's written in the law? You know the law, right? You're a lawyer. What do you think? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's his answer. Good answer? Did he say good answer? I said good answer. That's a good answer. So he, he, he answered it in the language of Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. If we knew our Old Testament, we can go right there. Leviticus 19, verse 6. You'll love, actually that should be 19, verse 8, 19, 18, I think. Mistake. And so now for the commentary. What does Jesus say? He says to the man, you have answered correctly. Jesus said, good answer right? Do this and you will what? 
live. There's those two words again. That's a good answer. You've answered correctly. You've given me a straight answer. That's what the word orthos means. That's a straight answer. It's a right answer. Go and, and do this and you will live. Well, that's a great, great thing. That we could stop, full stop right there, but that's not how this story goes. Do this. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Do this, and you will live. So now, the form, the idea, the conversation continues. Wait a minute, he said. I know who God is, but what question does he ask next? Who is my neighbor? It's a very important question. This, do this, and you will live. But he wants to justify himself. He's wanting, he finds himself on his back foot for a moment in this debate with Jesus. There may be other things going on that we don't know about in that conversation. But he, he finds himself wanting to justify himself before Jesus. And he says to Jesus, he says, okay, I'm, in a sense, I know who God is. We've been talking about God all our lives. But I'm not so sure who our neighbor is. When the scripture says, who is my neighbor... Let's dig around in there. Let's midrash that a little bit. Dig around in there. Great question. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives an answer. Now, here's part of the challenge. When you and I think about neighbor in the translation, we think about people near us. We think about people like us. In fact, cultural expectations at that time when Jesus is talking and even now is, would have run along somewhat along ethnic lines. People like me. People like us. People that speak our language, people that have the same color skin that we have, people who live in pretty much the same kind of neighborhoods that we do. All of that is part of what the expectation would have been. Who is my neighbor? But Jesus is about ready to expand that just a little bit, as you probably well know. Even sociologists today talk about people like me. They have an acronym, PLU, people like us. PLU, people like us. Birds of a feather flock together, we've noticed, right? People like us. Who is my neighbor? I'm expecting Jesus to say something, well, you know, he, he's another Jew like you, and he might be a lawyer, or he might be, you know, a, a sage or something. He might run a shop down in the market. But he's, so he's a lot like you. Love that man. Love that woman. Take care of them. And so Jesus, um, now with the second question, based upon Scripture, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor. Wait a minute, but let's dig around a little bit. Who is my neighbor? Let's figure that one out. Jesus, give us a little bit of your wisdom and your insight. And so Jesus tells a story, one of the most famous stories Jesus ever tells. Part of the good, we call it today the Good Samaritan. Wow, there's that word again, good. The Good Samaritan. Are there such things? A good, is there anything good that comes out of Samaria? Any good person that comes out of that, rant, uh, that, that people? Look at their history. Look at their background. You probably know a little bit of that. We're not going to delve too deeply in that, but he tells a story that there was a certain man. He was traveling from Jerusalem at 2,500 feet above sea level. And he was going to Jericho, 1,000 feet below sea level. It's a 17-mile walk. It is a rough and rugged walk. I'll show you a picture in a moment from there. But a few years ago, I was in Israel by myself, and I was driving from Jerusalem, and I was going to Jericho. I wanted to go down to see the Dead Sea, see where the Dead Sea Scrolls were. So I was in a little Fiat Punto. 
Little Fiat, I think it had a one and a half cylinders. I'm not sure. But it was really good going downhill. But there were a lot of uphills, you know, and it would just sound like a motorcycle almost. Put downshift and downshift and, man, you'd go really slow. It's a tough drive. I can't imagine what kind of walk that would be. The road still exists today. You can see it today. I've stood in the place there upon the road where if you look down this way, about eight miles, you see Jericho. And if you look up this way, you can see Jerusalem. It's an amazing spot. But when you look out, it looks like a lunar landscape. There's nothing alive. I think, let's see if I have it here. That, that's it. This is, this is Jericho, by the way. This is just a few miles, maybe a mile or so from Jericho. This is the road. It's about eight feet wide. It's not very wide. Big enough for a, a person to walk or a couple of people to walk and maybe an animal to walk. That road is still there today. It's never been paved, of course, because it's walking right above on the hills. And you can, you can see it today. And if you go there, no doubt there'll be Bedouin trying to sell you stuff if you get there. Hopefully you'll get there one day. But that's, that's the kind of road it was. There's all these, uh, you can't see it. But there's all these rocky places, and there's a cave right here where robbers could hang out waiting for some traveler. And that was very common for people, particularly traveling alone, or people who, who got behind in a caravan to be the very last one. That, they were easy pickings for the robbers. So this particular man was traveling. He fell among robbers. Far outnumbered. They beat him up, left him bloody and bruised on the side of the road. Half dead. Now by chance, Jesus said, that's our translation. By chance, a priest was going. Now our expectations are, oh good, there's a priest coming. Oh man, he's going to take care of the man. He's a priest. He works in the temple. He's close to God. Good things are going to happen. But in fact, what does the priest do? He's walking the other way on the road. And he saw him and he passed by on the other side. Now, this is not a super highway. This is not a long distance away. This is about 8 or 12 feet to be that close. And no doubt the man who was beaten and bloodied was ready to be rescued. But it would not be. The priest, the supposed good guy, goes the other way. And the story continues. Then it was a Levite. Oh, good, it's a Levite. They're good guys. They lead the music in the temple. They're they're, they're the, the praise band. They're the musicians for the church. Those are good guys. They're going to certainly stop and rescue this man and help him. He does the same thing. He sees him, goes by on the other side. And then, thirdly, it's always number three, isn't it? Always number three. There was a Samaritan, a half-breed, a heretic from a Jewish point of view. Not a good guy who was traveling, and he came to where the guy was, and now notice, he had what? Compassion. And what did he do? He did six things. He did six things. First of all, instead of going by on the other side, he went up to him. And then what did he do? He bound up his wounds, right? And what did he do? He put, poured on oil and wine. What he had available as he traveled. People always had something to drink with them. People always carried oil with them. Just like when you're camping or you're traveling, you probably put a flashlight in your suitcase, don't you? Or put it in your car because you want to have light. You, you, have, you have an oil lamp and you have extra oil for that lamp because an oil lamp would only hold about two, two, uh, two minutes, uh, sorry, two hours 
worth of, uh, worth of oil. And so and then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. That's a neighbor, right? This, was, this is the kind of oil lamp that he probably had. It's the kind of oil filler he probably had. So the next day, he took out two denarii, enough for about three weeks in a hotel. Think about that. Paying for a person you don't know, you're not related to, to stay in a hotel and get better for about two to three weeks. What would that cost you? He said to the man, take care of him, do whatever he needs, and when I come back, I'll stop in, check on him, and if you've spent more, I'll give you more. So Jesus asked, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now remember last week, when Mark talked, he talked about, and he used this slide here about God is reversing the world. He's turning things around. And Jesus was a master at turning things around. And now notice what happens here. He turned around the question from who is my neighbor to how to become a neighbor, how to be a neighbor. Don't ask it this way, who is my neighbor, that I should sort of figure out who I'm responsible for. Ask it instead, how should I be a neighbor? And I'm a neighbor through the example that Jesus gives here. So he turns that around, but he also turns around something else. In this story, the good guys become the bad guys. And the supposed bad guy becomes the good guy turning around cultural expectations. Now, this has all sorts of applications to where we are today in our polarized, polarizing political and cultural environment. Who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? Is it possible the bad guys are the people we should consider our neighbor and work with? God is reversing, he says this. So we're back to our final point. He's asked a question based on scripture. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. And Jesus said, do this and you will live. You'll have life to come. You'll have life now. You'll have life in the age to come. You'll have both. And so he asked a question based upon the answer up here. Who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan as part of this yellow medenu, rabenu, midrash. In this case, the parable here as the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And what does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. I want to suggest to you the most important word in this whole conversation is the word do. It's not a matter of doing something to be saved. We're not talking about that. He's talking about doing something to live abundantly here well, to live the good life well here, to live a life of meaning and purpose here well. Go and do likewise. That's that's the answer. There's all sorts of applications In Fred Craddock's commentary on interpretation of the Gospel of Luke, he said, we trivialize this by trying to make it too much about ourselves and our own times. We need to think more broadly about it in the broadest possible scheme. And so here, some possible answers. We saw that not really very good. Eudaimonia, the idea of happiness, properly understood is an important one. But another one, from this famous story. Now, just a couple of takeaways. I don't know how much time I have left. I don't see my clock back there. Almost, okay, almost done. 
couple more minutes. Takeaways. Um, all of us, I think, because we're here, are probably not nihilist, thinking that nothing matters, we're headed to nothing, this universe comes from nothing, it'll end in nothing. We probably are not nihilists, thinking it's all just nothing. We all probably have a sense of what it means, I want to live a good life. We might define it a little differently, but we all have that sense, that pull, I want to live a life of meaning and purpose. I want to have a life of telos, a life of meaning and purpose. All of us want to finish well. Some of you are closer to the finish line than others, right? It's true for all of us. And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. But let me suggest something here before I want to, I want to play a clip from Mark in just a minute. Because I think it's very apropos for where we are today. Here, here's uh, something that I think is true that comes out of this. That compassion is costly. You might feel compassion and do nothing. But for those who feel compassion and do something, that something can be incredibly costly. If you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, take a look. It, it interrupted his journey. Not just for a few minutes or a few hours, but a few days. Because he took everything that he did for him on that day. And it also cost him big time in terms of money. Once again, think about a person that you're not related to, a person that you happen to cross, a person of a different ethnic background than you, a person you think is a heretic, way off base, probably voted for, fill in the blank, And yet, he invested a lot of his time and his money, perhaps up into thousands of dollars in our economy. It cost big to be a man, a woman of compassion, to be known for that. But that is our call. Our call in following Jesus is to be a person that loves God that loves our neighbor, and that offers costly compassion. Compassion that costs you a lot. Not just something, but a lot. It's a good question. It's a good thought. Last week, Mark gave us about two minutes of the most impassioned plea that I can remember related to the Roe v. Wade decision. Some of you saw that. Some of you are here. Many of you did not. So I want to share with you that. Now, what, what he did before that is he gave us a little bit of a, a legal history of how we got from the Civil War all the way to Roe v. Wade. And he did a brilliant job sort of laying that out in terms of some of the legal precedents. But then, you know, there are people that, that are celebrating this and people that are decrying it as the worst thing possible for our states and for our nation. And, but Mark had a particular take on it that I want us to hear again and to be reminded that it could well be that our neighbor is a 14-year-old Hispanic girl who's pregnant that needs our help as a church, as a community of Jesus' followers. It may, she may not be our color. She may not speak our language. She may not be legal. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about the responsibility of God's people to this one who is truly 
our neighbor. Mark had this wonderful thing to share, and, and they're going to play it right now. But as a result of what the U.S. but as a result of what the U.S. Supreme Court ruled, we're going to have a different legal system when it comes to abortion and childbirthing in America. And I don't care where you are on that issue in terms of what I'm about to say. Whether you're over here or over there, for what I'm about to say doesn't matter. Because what I'm about to say is this. God expects his people to find those who are hurting, to find those who are desperate, and to love them with a selfless love and compassion. And if this means that women are going to be carrying children that they could not have afforded to carry because a number of abortions happen because the women just can't afford the child, can't afford the medical care, can't afford the, the hospitalization. Even I mean, heavens, our daughter has great insurance. Our daughter that had twins still costs them like 15 grand to have those babies. There are a lot of people that, that have abortions that don't have the money And what God's people need to do right now is step up and say, we will do anything we can to help because we're not here just to tell you, hey, you can't do that. Now get on down the road. We're here to say, we care about you. We care about your child. We want to help. We are here to do a U-turn in your life and to do a U-turn in the life of that child because God cares because human beings are made in his image and they have value. And we want to show that, not just say it. And we've got to do that. We've got to do that. I want, I, I want, I want God's people to rise up and, and be seen not as people of no compassion, but as people of ultimate compassion. As people who, who, who seek out those in need. And do everything in our power to try to bless and help and love on them. And that's an opportunity we've got regardless of where you land on that issue. Yeah, go ahead. There's a lot of wisdom there. We're on the same page in terms of understanding what compassion is and what compassion costs. It is going to cost you financially. It'll cost you in time. It may cost you friends who, when you start engaging certain questions and people who will not, they won't like you anymore. They won't trust you anymore. They won't go with you anymore. They won't meet you for lunch anymore. I've seen it happen over and over and over again, and probably you have too. So with Mark... Not only on this question, but on so many questions that are facing us as a nation, as a people, as a city, as a part of, of, of this great city, the fourth largest city in the United States. Some say third, but still seems to be fourth. The fourth largest city. How are we going to live with that costly compassion for women who are thinking about abortion? for immigrants who are here among us, for human beings made in God's image with whom we can and should and will have a response. And it's not something that one person can do. It's a community response. It's us. Let us hear from our rabbi. What did our rabbi tell us? He told us to go out there and be a neighbor to people who are hurting who are different than you, who look differently than you, who speak a different language than you do, whose dreams are in a different language than your dreams. Be a a compassionate person. So here's our takeaway. Number one, love God. Love God. And one of the ways that we love God is we do so by loving our neighbor who is made in God's image. And understanding that at the very end of the day, it's going to cost you something to love God. 
It's going to cost you a lot to love your neighbor. The needs are so great. The resources are so few. It's not enough as James say, James says, I have faith. And you say to that man who is cold, go warm yourself. Or you say to the person who's hungry, go get a good meal somewhere. And you do nothing to help. James says, can that kind of faith save you? Costly compassion. My, uh, my hope and prayer would be today, as we close, is that we would understand this story within the cold context of, uh, of how Jesus taught it. And let it be a challenge to us to live lives of costly compassion. To love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything. And then love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these good folks. Thank you for this snapshot from the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus. Help us to be those kinds of people. We have enough of those who are for or against this or want to debate this or that. We need more who are willing to give costly grace and costly compassion. So I pray that we will be those people, that this will be that kind of church, that we can affect the city in such a positive way by loving those and providing for those and truly being a neighbor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.